0: Please remain standing for the reading of Scripture. Luke chapter 24, verse 36. This is the word of the Lord. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that is I myself. Touch me and see." And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Would you pray with me? Father, help us to hear your holy word this morning. That in hearing, we may understand. That in understanding, we may believe. And that in believing, we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do. I pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. You guys may be seated. Good morning. It is such a joy to be with you all. Before we jump into our text, as Logan mentioned, I want to share a little bit about my wife and what we are doing in New England. My name is Garrett. My wife's name is Heidi, and we have four Daughters ranging from eight down to one. I think the youngest is in the nursery. While I was in seminary and while our family was a part of Faith Community Church, the Lord began to work in our hearts to go to New England to church plant in the least religious region in America. After weeks and years of hearing Christ proclaimed from this pulpit, the word faithfully explicated we became burdened for those who did not get to have what we had here. And so we wanted to go so that others might hear, believe, and be saved. So that's why in 2020, we moved our family to the state of Vermont to train with NETS, the New England Training sending and Sending Center for Church Planning and Revitalization. And by God's grace, we've completed that two-and-a-half-year training program, and now we're transitioning from training to church planting. Throughout my time there, I've been able to build a partnership with a church in the greater Hartford area of Connecticut. So now we can join them in saturating that city with gospel preaching churches. That's what we want to do pepper the landscape so that others can hear of Christ. Now, just to give you an idea of what Hartford is like, it's a little bit smaller than Kansas City. And according to Barna Research, it's the seventh most post-Christian city and it's the eighth least Bible-minded city in America. The particular suburb of Manchester that we are seeking to plant a church only has 3% of the population affiliated with an evangelical church. Compare that to Kansas City, which statistics say is 22% of people who are identifying with an evangelical denomination. So we see the need here, obviously, but how much more so is that need in Hartford, in America's backyard? And Heidi and I feel privileged to be a a part of God's people on God's mission in New England. Now, just to give you guys some of what we're doing over the next year or so, in 17 days, Heidi and I and the girls are moving to Manchester, Connecticut. It's on the east side of Hartford, less than 10 minutes from downtown. From there until the fall of 2024, I have three things on my job description. Those are to be building relationships to reach the lost, recruit a core team, and raise the funds necessary for this local church body to get started. Building relationships to reach the lost by getting to know people through community events, through using our daughters, you know, their gymnastics, their soccer to connect with other families all in view of getting the gospel to people. We want to team up with those who we already know in Manchester to get them into evangelistic Bible studies, go through basic doctrines like sin, Savior, and saving faith. We just want to start gossiping the gospel in Manchester, praying that the Lord will save his people. Now what's really cool about us going to Manchester is that there's already 10 families that are living in Manchester. They're actually traveling to the church that we're going to partner with, and they are so excited to be a part of the church plant in Manchester. They have to travel across the city to be a part of a gospel-preaching church, and so they're excited to see one in their neighborhood. And we get to partner with them, and we are so excited to get down there and for the next year to build relationships with them, because we, we know that those first few years are incredibly difficult. So we want to build relationships, build trust, so that when things are hard, which they will be, we'll be there for one another, with one another, through thick and thin. And then the third focus over the next year, until we launch in fall of 2024, is to raise the necessary funds to begin this local church so that in due time, those who are coming to faith will be able to sustain the church themselves. We want to go from a church supported and sustained by brothers and sisters like you to a church that supports itself and one day can be a part of other churches coming into existence. The Lord has been so gracious to us. We've already raised almost half the funds we need for the church plant. And now, in addition to the support we're seeking from churches, we're also looking for families and individuals to come on. If we could raise about 500 more in monthly giving from individuals and families, it would get us well down the road to finishing up the funding we need for 2024. So I would love for you to consider meeting that need and joining the effort to take the gospel to those in Manchester, Connecticut. If you guys would like to find out more, there's a table that was set up on this site, I believe. There's some really cool material out there. There's these prayer cards that we put together. They show you how you can be praying for us. They have some statistics on the back and some giving information. These are great. We love when people pray for us. It's so encouraging when I get an email on a really hard day and they say, hey, Garrett, we've been praying for you. We love that. So please take a prayer card. I'd love for everyone to take all of those. We also have a sign-up sheet for our e-newsletter. We're going to be sending out uh, Newsletters about once a month with specific prayer requests, share stories of what the Lord's doing. Hey, I met this guy at Panera Bread and he wants to read the Bible with me. Would you pray for Joe? Would you pray for Bill? Things like that. And then, lastly, these things are really cool. This is basically a distillation of our vision. There's a bunch of these out there that you can look through and learn more about what we're doing. And it really helps you to see what the Lord's doing in Manchester. And I just think it's so encouraging to see what the Lord's doing elsewhere. So if you would, grab one of these after the service. Well, just to connect this to the sermon, it's kind of hard to do a little bit of an update into the sermon, but as we think about what we're doing in Manchester, I mentioned those 10 families who are so excited to be a part of the church plant. God is already at work in Manchester, and that's why we're so excited to go there, to jump in where God is at work. Jesus has called us to be fishers of men together, and it's not like 21st century rod and reel fishing. It's rather like in Jesus's day, a bunch of people grabbing a net, throwing that net into the water, and pulling in the catch together. And so when we look at Manchester, Connecticut, we look at it as a place where we have found our place on the net, casting it with brothers and sisters who God is already working in, and we just get to be a part of it with them. All for the mission of exalting Christ as Lord through the conversion of rebels into worshipers, from those who are his enemy into those who are his ambassadors. And so as we look at Luke 24... It's that very mission that I want us to dive into. And as believers, we know what that commission is, right? Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples. We get that. We got the command. But the question I want to ask you guys this morning is what's it going to take for us to be on mission and faithfully carrying out the task given to us by our Lord and Savior? To put it another way, how does Jesus prepare and empower his disciples for the Great Commission mission? I believe Luke 24 answers that. Now before I cover verses 36 through 43, our first section, it's helpful to know where we are in the flow of Luke's gospel. If we back up to chapter 23, it contains the crucifixion of Christ, the burial of Christ, and lastly, the women who had followed Christ resting on the Sabbath day, the seventh day of the week. But with a new beginning, as is noted in chapter 24, verse 1, we have a new creation beginning. On the first day of the week, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, and he rises from the dead early in the morning. And in chapter 24, Luke records for us three interactions on that first Easter Sunday. All three of these interactions include similar ideas. First, there are followers of Christ who are learning about his resurrection in one way or another. Second, in these interactions, they respond with perplexing disbelief. And third, that disbelief is confronted with the language of, Why are you perplexed? You should have got this. You should have known this was coming. So let's begin in chapter uh, 24, verse 1. That Sunday morning, a few women follow Jesus. They find the empty tomb, and the text says the women are perplexed that his body is gone. And then two angels confront their disbelief. You can see that when they say, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day and rise. So that's the first interaction. The second interaction is that unforgettable account on the road to Emmaus. The two disciples are walking. The text says that they're sad. And Jesus, who's unrecognizable, comes onto the scene and says, what are you guys talking about? They describe that they were excited that Jesus was the Savior of Israel, but now he's dead by crucifixion. They've heard the testimony of the women, but they aren't believing it. And because they should have been able to connect the dots and see how and why the Christ would suffer and die and rise again, Jesus responds to them in chapter twenty-four: Oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then Luke writes, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that is Jesus, interpreted to them all the things in Scripture concerning himself. And now we're to our passage, the third interaction. Similar ideas occurring late on that first resurrection Sunday. The interaction begins in verse 36. Jesus appears in the midst of the disciples as the two had just ran all the way back from Emmaus to tell everyone what just happened. And when Jesus appears, he says, peace to you. Though this is a common greeting in those days, it has taken on a whole new meaning for those disciples. Because before Jesus' crucifixion, he had told the disciples in John uh, 14 that he would give them peace when he said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And after conquering sin and death for his people, Christ is now giving that peace to his people. But the disciples aren't getting it. They're the opposite of what Jesus said. They're troubled and afraid, as if it couldn't possibly be Jesus, and it's some sort of spirit. And in verse 38 of our text, Jesus responds to them asking, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? This question communicates that the disciples aren't responding the way they ought They're just like the women early that morning. They're just like the two on the road to Emmaus. What should be obvious is not obvious. And Jesus has to explain to them why this is ungrounded disbelief. He's already told them on numerous occasions that he would die and rise again. But they have troubled, doubting hearts. Jesus then commands them in verse 39, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me if you have to. Look at me. Jesus is saying that their doubts are baseless. He can't possibly be a spirit. They don't have flesh and bone bodies. He's saying, I'm right here. Look at me. See my side pierced for your transgressions. It's really me. But then verse 41 tells us that the disciples are still concerned and they have a stiff arm out. The verse reads, they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. Based on the context, I don't think that this disbelief is unbelief, because it says there that their disbelief is in the midst of joy and marveling. It's not the kind of unbelief that says, you can't be Jesus back from the dead. This is more of a disbelief like, I don't understand what's happening. Could this really be? It's a disbelief because they aren't getting it yet. And Jesus, recognizing that disbelief for joy, he asks for something to eat as another proof to the disciples that he's really him and not a ghost. So Jesus takes the piece of broiled fish, he puts it in his mouth, everyone's staring at him, and he begins to eat and chew. Table manners are out the window. They are trying to figure out what is going on. Ghosts don't eat and chew. This is a proof that Jesus has risen indeed. These verses contain three proofs that Christ has truly resurrected and is fully human. He is seen, he is touched, and he eats. Now, for us, it might be kind of like, why does he need to go through all of this? I mean, clearly they can see him. He's already talked about it. Why, why such disbelief? It's helpful to see why in their day, in their context, this would have been so hard for them to get their minds around. The Jewish people in that day get a reigning Savior. They get a king coming who will reign, who will be uh, delivering God's people from God's enemy to establish God's kingdom on the earth. But what the Jewish people in their day don't get is a suffering Savior. And the reason they don't get it is because of the teaching of the Jews that day. They were teaching and looking for the Messiah, the Christ, God's anointed and king, who would end their suffering, but not a Messiah who would endure suffering and receive the curse of death. In their minds, they think, how can a king who suffers and dies end the suffering of his people? It's counterintuitive to them. So it's this whole picture of the Messiah dying and raising from the dead that has the disciples cautious, confused, and slow of heart to believe. So that helps us to see why Jesus is so patient with them, slowly showing them it's really me. Within the four Gospels, Luke shares the most about the disciples' disbelief and slowness of heart to believe in his resurrection. He's doing this so that they would have a sure faith. The disciples have to have a sure faith that he has risen from the dead. And being sure or certain of what Christ has accomplished for sinners is actually the purpose of Luke's gospel. We don't have to turn there, but if you were to look at chapter 1 of Luke, you would see that it starts by saying this. That he has written an orderly account of what Jesus has accomplished among us. Why? That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This whole book of the Bible has been written so that believers can be sure about Christ. And Christ himself is doing no less on that evening with the disciples. See, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, touch me if you have to so that you may have certainty concerning my resurrection. So we can see that Jesus is calling the disciples to a sure faith based on seeing him back from the dead with their own eyes. Now in the last half of our passage, Jesus helps them to connect the dots, to get the whole picture of the Messiah by showing them that the gospel message is really Scripture's message. That his death, his resurrection, and salvation of sinners from every nation is what the Bible has been declaring this whole time. Would you look with me again at our passage, starting in verse 44? Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you Things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. After instructing the disciples to have a sure faith, Jesus is now going to show the disciples the Scripture's message, what the Bible's really been saying this whole time, even though the teachers in their day had confused it. And then concluding in verse 49 we see the Spirit's empowerment that emboldens the disciples for the mission. Now, before we start walking through verse 44, it's helpful to note a few things. First, it's helpful to see that there are no imperatives or commands when Jesus discusses the Great Commission with the disciples. He's focused on them seeing his atoning work, his resurrection and commission within the Scriptures. So that helps us to see that this isn't Luke's version of Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples. No, Luke is recording what happened earlier. He helps us to see that before the disciples were actually commissioned, Jesus was equipping his disciples so that they would be convinced of his resurrection and convinced that the salvation message is the message of Scripture. So Jesus begins by telling his disciples that his resurrection is is not an add-on to God's Word. Rather, it's the fulfillment of all the Scriptures. You can see that in verse 44. What Jesus means by fulfillment is that the Old, Old Testament ultimately was paving the way for people to see that God would send Jesus. And when he refers to the Scriptures, he's referring to the Old Testament you'll notice that he mentions three things there, three sections of the Old Testament. He refers to the law, the prophets, and he refers to the writings by referring to the first book of that section, the Psalms. So when you read these verses, you need to see that Jesus is asserting that all Scripture is fulfilled in him. What a bold assertion. Starting in verse 45, we are taught that Jesus opens the minds of the disciples by explaining the scriptures just as he did on the road to Emmaus, as you look back up in verse 32. Now, these are the things he explains to the disciples throughout the Old Testament. Look with me at verses 46 and 47. He taught them that the Christ, Messiah, should suffer, that on the third day the Christ would raise from the dead, And number three, the scriptures teach that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus is saying that's all over your Old Testament. Now you'll notice Jesus says that these three gospel components are within the three sections of the Old Testament, but there's no specific instances for us. So I think it'd be helpful to put a quarter in the meter and park here for a minute. Because we are not nearly as acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures as the disciples were. And who, by the way, they weren't getting it. So let's dive into the Old Testament together. Let's walk through these three components of the gospel within the three sections of the Old Testament. I want to give you one example of each of those gospel components within the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms. First, Christ's suffering. We learn from the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy, that God is a holy God who will by no means clear the guilty. So within the nation of Israel, God institutes the sacrificial system. You can see that in Leviticus, whereby the blood of innocent spotless lambs was shed as a picture of atonement for sin. The innocent suffering and dying in the place of the guilty. Within the whole sacrificial system, we have a picture of Christ. Do you remember what John the Baptist shouted when Jesus came to him as he was baptizing? What did John the Baptist shout? He shouted, Behold the Lamb of God, the sacrificial Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. How about within the prophets? The prophet Isaiah teaches us of the servant of the Lord, of the Messiah. We learn in Isaiah 49 that there's going to be a servant who comes who will save Israel. And then in Isaiah 53, we read these memorable words, that that servant was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that has brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Isaiah prophesied that the Christ must suffer for our sins. This teaching is within the Psalms as well. It sounds like you guys went through Psalm 22 not too long ago, and so you're very familiar with this passage. Jesus quoted it, uh, the first verse of it on the cross, when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Within that Psalm, we read things like this, that prophesy of the crucifixion of Christ. I am poured out like water. Water and all my bones are out of joint, they have pierced my hands and my feet. All of these Old Testament teachings and prophecies find their fulfillment in the innocent Christ who suffered and died in the place of guilty sinners. All the Old Testament was telling us that the Messiah wouldn't simply be a reigning Savior but that he would be a suffering Savior. Now, what about Christ rising from the dead? Where is that in the Old Testament? Specifically with this third-day idea. This one's a little tougher to see, and so I'm just going to use Jesus' words because he's helpful. Jesus, in Matthew 12, he's confronting the Pharisees. They say they want to see a sign that he is truly the Messiah— And if you're familiar with the passage, he says this in response. No sign will be given to this generation except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus is saying that Jonah's figurative death in the fish and resurrection three days later was ultimately an Old Testament prediction of his death and his resurrection three days later. You guys know that story well. Jonah is told by God to go to the Gentile Ninevites about his coming judgment. Jonah runs from God, boards a boat, but then God brings the mighty tempest on the sea. Jonah and Gentile sailors are about to die in the storm, but they throw Jonah overboard to his death to save the sailors. But it's more than just a physical saving, right? Because the text says that they turn to the Lord and believe. Gentiles turning to the Lord and believing. But Jonah doesn't actually end up dying. He's swallowed by the fish. And three days later, he's given his life back to go and preach to the nation of the Ninevites that they have an opportunity to repent before God for the forgiveness of their sins. Do you see it? A whole picture of Christ in the prophet Jonah. Jesus is telling us in Matthew 12 that that was ultimately a picture of himself. He's helping us to see within our Old Testament that there's not just simply prophecies, but that there's pictures of himself and his work of salvation. Now that's helpful to get our minds around because once we get that, then we'll see resurrection everywhere. Once we see that pictures point us to Christ, we'll notice them in the law. We'll see Christ when we read Genesis 22. Do you remember when God called Abraham to sacrifice Isaac? You'll see resurrection there, because in the story, God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, his only son, and that three days later, they go up the mountain, and before he actually sacrifices him, a ram is given, and he doesn't, he doesn't sacrifice Isaac, and the text says he received him back on the third day. Now, that may seem far-fetched, if you're not familiar with pictures of Christ in the Old Testament, but if you can't trust me, trust, trust the writer of Hebrews. He talks about Abraham and this resurrection idea in Hebrews 11, 17, and 19. The author writes, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, verse 19, And he did this because he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. The author of Hebrews is telling us that Abraham had resurrection on his mind when that was going on. So you can see it in the law, you can see it in the prophets, that Christ's resurrection was pointed to, that it was pictured And yet we see it again in Psalm 22. After showing us that this man would be forsaken by God, pierced in his hands and feet, all of which are a picture of death, we get this verse, verse 21, that says, You, God, have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. That's a picture of resurrection rescue from the dead. After being pierced, after being poured out, after death you have rescued me from the enemy. All throughout the scriptures, we read of the gospel in prophecies and pictures. Jesus of Nazareth is the very Christ they've been looking for. He's the coming one. He's the anointed one who knew no sin and was the spotless lamb of God. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And on the third day, he rose from the dead for our justification. Oh, how the scriptures tell the old, old story of Jesus and his glory. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. How about this salvation being proclaimed to all nations? Where is that within the Old Testament? When it comes to this gospel component, you'll see it as early as Genesis. Brother Logan already read part of Abraham's covenanting with God. We see there in chapter 17, we also see it in chapter 15, and we see it in chapter 12, that God is blessing abraham he's going to make him into a father of a great nation and god says that through him he's going to bless all the families of the earth with salvation and those families are the nations in the prophets we have isaiah 49 that speaks of the messiah and it says i will make you the messiah as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth does anyone remember where that's from Acts 182 too. Acts 1.8, it's also there as well. So we see that this salvation is going to go to the ends of the earth. And we know that it has to begin in Jerusalem because salvation is of the Jews, right? John 4. It's going to begin there, but it's not going to stay there. It's going to go everywhere. Now this gospel component is all over the Psalms. It's everywhere. But I want to take us back to Psalm twenty two. Because I, just, I want you to see that even a single psalm can have all the gospel components. Psalm 22, in verses 27 and 31, we have the death motif, we have the resurrection motif, and then the psalm ends like this. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Brothers and sisters, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. The gospel message is scripture's message. May we never hear the words of Jesus, O foolish one, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Rather, let our hearts burn within us like the first disciples who upon seeing their Savior in all of Scripture became convinced that Christ's work of salvation is what the whole Bible is about. It's about God saving sinners through His Son for His eternal glory. That's what Christ was after with His disciples that night. Sure faith, based on eyewitness evidence and a conviction that the gospel message is Scripture's message. This is all part of what it's going to take for us to be on mission. We've got to have a sure faith and we've got to be convinced that this is the message given to us. And the reason why it's going to take this is because of what it says in verse 48. Verse 48. Christ's disciples both then and now, are His witnesses to the world. If they are going to have, give their lives for the gospel mission and tell everyone of what they've seen and heard, they had to be convinced that Christ's resurrection was real. They had to be convinced that the gospel message is Scripture's message, not a man-made message. That's what it was taking for them to live on mission for Christ. Now in our last verse, we learn of that third component, the Spirit's empowerment for the mission. Verse 49 tells us that he was going to send the promise of the Father upon them, but they were to wait until they were clothed with power from on high. Connect spirit and power there. These final words are a great comfort to the disciples who've been given so great a task. Jesus is saying, I'm not going to leave you as orphans in the world, but I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit who was promised way back in Ezekiel 36. You guys remember that New Covenant passage? That as the New Covenant is established, it will be marked by the indwelling Spirit. The Lord declared in 36:26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within myself or put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's the power they need. That's the spirit they need. Enabled to do what God has called them to do. And as you guys know, Pentecost, that's fulfilled. The Spirit empowers the disciples, and now every disciple since then has been empowered by the Spirit to go and make Christ known in all the earth. So that's Luke 24, 36 through 49. I started off by asking, what's it going to take for us to live out, to carry out Christ's mission And I believe that this passage teaches us that it's going to take a sure faith proclaiming Scripture's message by the Spirit's empowerment. Sure faith preaching Scripture's message by the empowerment of the Spirit. Now as we seek to apply this passage's teaching, I want to drill down deeper on these three ideas. When it comes to having a sure faith, I do not want to assume that everyone here is walking in faith. You could be here this morning at the instigation of family because someone brought you, or you might be here because you're just wanting to check out this whole Christianity thing. I want you to know that the command to repent and believe in Christ is not a command to have blind faith. It's not a command to suppress knowledge and blindly believe, or you might go to hell if you don't. No. The call to repent and to put your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins comes with certainty. You can have certainty concerning the things you've been taught this morning. Because just as Jesus was crucified and died publicly, He's also raised from the dead publicly. We have eyewitnesses everywhere. The four Gospels share of multiple occasions on which Jesus showed himself to various people. Eyewitness accounts everywhere. Acts chapter 1 teaches us that Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs for 40 days. 40 days he went around showing himself I'm sure he got tired of saying, touch me and see. You got some broiled fish? Let me eat that too. I'm really real. It's not some speculative resurrection. No, he rose from the dead. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians fifteen six that Jesus appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. And he writes that most of them were still alive when he wrote that. 500 people at a single time seeing, touching the resurrected Christ. That's a group of people similar to the amount of people we have here this morning. Could you imagine that kind of eyewitness evidence? Dear unbelieving friend, you can have a sure faith based on the physical evidence of the eyewitnesses to Christ, to his miraculous resurrection. And not only that, you can have the scriptural evidence that long before he ever came, the Bible spoke of him. Jesus didn't create some new cult or man-made message when he came. Jesus is calling you to faith in a God-planned, scripture-telling salvation that was written thousands of years before he ever came. You can't manufacture that. That's why Jesus intentionally walked his disciples through the scriptures so that they could see that Moses spoke of him, that the prophets foretold of him, and that the Psalms sang of his suffering. Jesus is calling you to a sure faith that no human could manufacture or manipulate. So I plead with you this morning, if you are not identifying with Christ as a believer, I call you to come to him in repentance and faith. You can have certainty concerning the things you've been taught this morning. But the call to belief is not simply for those outside of Christ. It's for all of us. Believers need to heed this call too. Genuine believers can struggle with doubt and go through seasons characterized by weak faith. So maybe that's you this morning, and you need to hear the call of Scripture to have a sure faith in Christ, that he died, that he rose from the dead, and that Christ saves sinners of all stripes this morning. I want to ask you, is there anything going on in your heart and mind that Christ would say to you, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Now, it might be helpful to step back and ask yourself, what's actually causing those doubts? Oftentimes, when believers are weak in faith, it's because they've let present circumstances threaten their faith. They've let the cares of this world weigh down their heart. Maybe you've been distracted by worry and toil to get daily bread, that you've lost your certainty concerning Him who is the bread of life. You've been letting the cares of this world choke out gospel belief within you. If that's you this morning, don't suppress it, but bring those doubts into the light so that God can remove them and give you a sure faith. Jesus is kind. That's exactly what he did on the night of his resurrection. Come to me, see me, that you might have a sure faith. You and I are called to an unwavering faith in Christ as his people. And as the people of God who live according to the word of God, we need to be clear on the message of the word of God. We need to have a sure faith and we need to be clear on Scripture's message. Are you clear this morning? Can you tell a fake from the real thing? Like those who hold up a $100 bill and can tell the difference. Are you clear on what the scripture is saying and what it's not saying? Allow me to ask a few questions just as a barometer for you. Would you say our message to the world is that people are basically okay, but Jesus helps us in our weak areas? I hope not. We are sinners through and through. We need to repent for the forgiveness of our sins. Is our message that through our obedience to God's law we are saved? No. Because then Christ would have died for no purpose. Perhaps more current to our times is Scripture's message about rectifying racism, or providing for those in poverty. No. The Scripture's message is that the reconciliation we need most is to the God we've committed injustices toward. The Scripture's message is that those who are in poverty need to be filled in Christ. The wealth that we actually need is the wealth of salvation. 2 Corinthians tells us that though Christ Jesus was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's the wealth you really need. That's what we need. That's what the world needs. Are you clear this morning on what the Bible is actually saying? This is crucial because we live in a world that is constantly assaulting our message and subverting our message with half-truths, which you and I know are whole lies. Jesus made sure the apostles were clear on the message of Scripture, and he wants no less for you and for me this morning. A sure faith proclaiming the Scripture's message all by the Spirit's empowerment for the mission. Now, A whole sermon could be on this topic, but there's only two things I'm going to talk about this morning that I think are helpful. When it comes to the empowerment of the Spirit, first, that empowerment is not something subsequent to becoming a believer. The Spirit indwells and empowers a person from the moment of salvation because it was the Spirit who wrought that salvation in the first place. And second, the Spirit's empowerment reveals itself in missional living. That's something that's really helpful to write down. The Spirit's empowerment reveals itself in missional living. As we look at a sure faith scriptures message and the Spirit's empowerment, when it comes to that third one, that one's hard to nail down if I'm being empowered by the Spirit. But you will be able to see it and how it reveals itself in missional living. It's not the only way he works in us, but Jesus does make that connection for us in ver- verse 49. We learn here that those who are clear on who empowers us to proclaim Scripture's message with a sure faith will be taking up the mission of, the, of Christ as the calling of their lives. They will take that up because they know that what He is working in them must be lived out. They will live out what he is working in. They will be sharing Christ when they have opportunity. They will be praying for more gospel laborers because they know that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Those who are clear will be praying, according to 2 Thessalonians 3.1, that the the word of the Lord may speed ahead, that it may be honored among the nations. Those who are clear on the Spirit's empowerment will be going and telling others of Christ. They will be teaming up with other brothers and sisters, to do evangelism, evangelism together, whether that's cold evangelism on the street or getting together for evangelistic Bible studies to go through simple doctrines like sin, Savior, and saving faith. And they will be sending others so that the lost may hear, believe, and be saved. Is that you this morning? Is the Spirit's empowerment being revealed in missional living in your life? If that's convicting, I want you to know I'm not here to browbeat this morning. Rather, I'm wanting this to be an opportunity for you and for me. An opportunity to consider the calling of Jesus upon our lives and to look for the place along the gospel net where we can be used by God for God's mission. All of us have been called to be fishers of God men. And we can do that together, praying, sending, going, all by the Spirit's empowerment. May we take the baton from the apostles and go into all the world with a sure faith, preaching Scripture's message by the empowerment of the Spirit. Would you pray with me? Father, what a privilege it is to have your word, to sit under the preaching of your word. Lord, I pray that you would enable us by your spirit to live in light of your word. For those who are in disbelief or doubting, I pray that you would enable them to behold our merciful and gracious Savior, who is willing to come alongside those in doubt and work to produce a sure faith in them. For those of us who are prone to lose sight of what the message of Scripture really is or what the mission of the church is, would you clear the fog in their minds? Would you draw them back to the Scripture? May they hold fast to what is the gospel. Would you protect them from false doctrines? And Father, help all of us to grab our place on the gospel net and be used by you in the salvation of souls, both in Kansas City and in Hartford, in our neighborhood and throughout all the nations. I ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing this in response. A 4,000 tongues to sing.